welcome to the Mind Over MRKH podcast. I'm Ella May, the founder and director of Vava Womb and Mind Over MRKH, and I'll be talking all things MRKH, aka Mayer Rokitansky Kuster Hauser Syndrome, aka Malariogenesis. I am one of the one in 5,000 female babies born worldwide without or an underdeveloped womb, cervix and vaginal canal. On this podcast, I'll be talking all things MRKH from pleasure to dilating, mental and sexual health, fertility and navigating your MRKH journey. I'll be joined by advocates and experts along the way. This podcast aims to support the production and printing of the MRKH magazine project, where we aim to produce, print and post a magazine to our global MRKH community. If you want to join me on this podcast or ask me a question, pop me an email over at mindovermrkh at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at mindovermrkh. You are not alone. You are worthy and you are loved. So excited to have my good friend Ali Hensley on the podcast. Ali Hensley is a writer, speaker and advocate for women's health and happiness. Ali has written for leading publications on mental health, infertility, body positivity and has become a regular media interviewee and speaker on how to transform trauma into triumph. Ali works to reduce the stigma surrounding mental health and prompts conversations that matter. Ali is inspired by real humans telling real stories and has become an international go-to on how to maximise impact with big ideas when it comes to tackling taboo head-on. By discovering her own version of self-acceptance, Ali has created a loving relationship with her MRKH diagnosis, a statement that, a statement that would have once derailed her. Over a decade ago, Ali co-founded Australia's first MRKH organisation and in 2016 launched Global MRKH, an international hub to better understand the global footprint of this life-altering diagnosis. Ali also connected with the Content Crush Company, a Sydney-based creative agency launched by best friend and author Amy Molly. Ali joins a team of copywriters creating brand campaigns and authentic content with household names, emerging startups and budding authors. As a freelance writer, being a digital nomad is her ultimate goal, with, a big, with big plans for Bali, Bondi and Berkshire Commute. As a truth teller, Ali defines herself as a realistic but scrappy dreamer where fact is essential and originality is to be absolutely embraced. I'd like to add a trigger warning to this episode for self-harm and real talk. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Hi, Anna How Hi, are Ali. you? This well? is the first podcast I've started of just laughing because I, I can't do it with you. I can't. Well, I look, you can't. Know, trauma doesn't have to be all tears. Trauma, like, can produce even, <laughs> you know, like it can produce, you know, it, like, look, I think you're never going to go mad if you can find the sense of humor and things. And I'm not yes. like diminishing trauma. I'm just saying that it's okay to smile about something. Exactly. Something bad that's brought good. That's so true. <laughs> Um, so Ali's here, everyone. <laughs> I am. I can see her. She's beautiful. <laughs> you too. You too. Oh, thanks. Actually, I don't yeah, even know where could... to... What, go on? I was going to say, you're sort of blending your top with your lip colour. So guess was what this that, top is? Was it that this conscious? Is, this is the jumper I wore for the global film that you did. Do you know what? I thought it sodding was. 
it's honestly too weird. Isn't that funny? How weird is that? Yeah, so I was going to say that. I was like, I've had, I wore this jumper to work. I haven't got changed for the podcast. I've, I've also got pyjama bottoms on. Um, and I remembered earlier that it was the jumper I wore for the global film. And the global film, I was in this flat and my sofa was the other side. And I remember feeling so ill. Do you remember me telling you? Mm. Um, and I just had the worst throat. And I was like, doing my MRKH story with my croaky <laughs> No, that was like two and a half years ago and I remember because obviously it was being recorded in Australian time yeah. so you were doing it at 11 o'clock at night which is really surreal like it's really hard to get yourself in that sort of disclosure brave space when mm. really you want to just be like chilling out and going to sleep but you didn't you know you really did incredibly oh you know, obviously. it was the first I think it was the first thing I think it was the th- first sort of big advocacy thing I did but anyway can you tell us about the global film just in case no one's heard of it. Okay, the Global MRKH. Okay, so it was based off the back of the World Congress for Paediatric and Gynecology in 2019, I think it was now. But what I thought was really relevant, and because I've got a passion for digital storytelling anyway, I think there's Mm. an awful lot of power when we tell it in different mediums. Um, And I really wanted to get a global snapshot of MRKH because whilst a lot of the obviously the support networks are stemming from certain countries and obviously since that film it's expanded Mm. which is wonderful I just felt that it was really important to get different voices from different people across the world about their experiences from I want to say like a a good news story because I would always say my story was probably if you're going to have a good diagnosis it couldn't have been a like cleaner really Mm. for me But then you can bounce to Africa where MRKH is considered, you know, they almost like talk about witchery, you know, how if you put say, and this wasn't quoted from Geneva, but you know, it it brings a whole lot of stigma and shame. And then if you place a person with MRKH in the sunlight, Mm. will it cure them? Will it heal them? And I think that we probably underestimate because of social media, the kind of the gravity that people are experiencing in countries that don't have a massive Instagram presence, mm. they're not on TikTok, oh, they don't so have true. YouTube. And I think, you know, whilst I love the amount of awareness that's coming out now because it's obviously become a very digital tsunami of stories, mm. I just don't want to forget the people because I think it's really important to acknowledge that 10, 15 years ago, MRKH for you and I was a very different space, maybe. Mm. But for other countries, they are 10, 15 years ago today. Yeah, and that's so such I think a good that we need to. Actually. Yeah, I think it's yeah. important that we don't kind of outgrow our younger selves and what we knew and felt because people mm. are going through that today. And I don't think that we would be good at it. We'll, and we'll almost if, forever be going through it because forever. otherwise their whole country's got to change everything about them, which is, yeah. <clears> and it's not going to happen overnight. Away. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that was the story. I think it was about showing comparison, diversity, and the global footprint, and the kind of like the power of connectivity. You know, like we we are sort of like this incredible, huge collective. But I think it's important to keep acknowledging the differences and normalizing those differences is what's what's key. And of course, LMA, you did an incredible job, as did the other six. 
people oh, it was, yeah yeah it was don't say that because I think the whole you put the whole thing together for God's sake you absolutely smashed it it was like it was amazing I remember showing it to my parents and they were just so taken back by because I, I obviously came from a privileged diagnosis story and I can obviously ask you about yours in a minute me and Ali are trying not to do this as scripted as I've no, tried to make them no, no, yeah. Let's, we're trying to be <laughs> we supernatural trying to wing it but I am going to throw in questions and just so you know <laughs> of course oh you weren't um, talking to me you're talking to the listeners yeah <laughs> okay sorry okay sorry it's like the fourth wall <laughs> yeah I've got other people to talk to here Ali <laughs> no it's about me it's always no (laughs) it is about you and I'm going to speak to the listeners and speak to you and you you might have to sometimes speak to them as well I I just think we haven't had a good catch up I know for such a long time that's what we're craving so during me trying to be all professional Ali's like come on talk to me normally come on (laughs) no being professional I can putting on my professional look my glasses are going back on okay I'm ready I love them um also this is the first podcast I've had a glass of wine so sorry everyone (laughs) I know and I'm on bloody lift stage oh well you should join me um so what was I saying I can't remember now um no I was saying my parents watched it and I think I was saying about a privileged diagnosis story and I've only really got my head around that word privilege when it comes to an MRKH diagnosis I obviously understand privilege when it comes to race and things like that but when it comes to an MRKH diagnosis there is a privilege when it comes to Mm. being diagnosed like you said quickly getting the right support or not the right support and Mm. just having MRKH and it obviously is really hard but having MRKH somewhere like Afghanistan or somewhere else is just totally a totally different world and and I think my, my parents watched that in particular they were like wow that is massive because you Mm -hmm. can see Geneva and different people from different backgrounds all over the world all going through different things and being disowned or Mm. like it's just and I think that's why your work with global just is I think some of the most important stuff going on because it is around touching those little corners of the world Mm. that we don't get do you remember when we did the writing workshop we had people from India yeah just everywhere mm, um there was yeah I was just thinking about you obviously the film and and how we were trying to expose obviously like the international stories and things like that but I think what was just also so relevant in that that short film that was produced by a really great kind of like an indie um Mm. social enterprise film company in Sydney so they really they really were backing telling a, a diverse story but I think because we always talk about you know and I always say MRKH is the most annoying acronym to advocate for because it's you know it's a, it's a mouthful it's mayor of mm. has a house syndrome da, 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 da. and I think but what it exposes and what it has exposed is that whilst MRKH is a very specific diagnosis the questions that stem from that diagnosis are actually quite societal mm. so it does question is biology linked to identity what does fertility really mean we talk about being a very progressive culture nowadays but still it's there's still a lot of taboo around the infertility sort of story you know I've been to so many sort of surrogacy webinars seminars and people whisper about the process it's like there's this underground conversation that's happening that people don't want to talk about fertility and it you know we know that it affects one in eight people and then you go on to like the sexuality part or the identity part of of femininity or female or whatever you identify as and that that really goes beyond mrkh 
And I think what that film has done and what continues to happen, led by yourself and some really great leaders, is talking about the larger topic when it comes to difference and our tolerance around difference and our ability to talk about, um, you know, those kind of stigmatized conversations. I think that mm. there's definitely a time and a place to talk about vaginas, good, number one. That's Vagina. Two. Um, <laughs> But I, I, you know, it, there's a time and a place to have that conversation. It might mm. not be with your colleagues around the water fountain. It might so be, not those different scenarios where it works. All those different and, yeah, scenarios. Yeah. But I think what we what we do if we don't talk about the, the, the brutal facts of this diagnosis, and you know, we've talked a lot about about you know the MRK when it comes to super super comfy talking about you know uteruses and wombs and then do we get super comfortable talking about vaginal dilation which mm. we know is a part of the diagnosis and I think in in not talking about it openly and honestly we're just cementing shame mm. because if I'm saying I'm unwilling to talk about a part of my diagnosis I'm giving permission for it to be a secret yeah. and the minute we start storing secrets and accepting secrets mm. we're accepting shame and nothing will ever change or grow whilst we're coming from a place of fear mm. and shame. And I think it's our responsibility through these types of conversations, you know, and the work that you do, the work that I do, the work mm. incredible people are doing at the moment is to keep pushing those sort of boundaries safely mm. forward to start exposing this diagnosis as a whole because it has a domino effect and it will help other communities, not in market other communities to keep telling yeah. their stories to a place of acceptance I think that's so true and I think there's like for me and probably for you that whole the whole vagina element of our story was our secret and I think like we've obviously pushed through those boundaries when was the first time you spoke about your vagina to someone else or a friend and when was the first time you spoke about your vagina online uh-huh. <laughs> It's really interesting because I've actually reconnected. I think I did something. I did a post last year about um, reconnecting with my first boyfriend. Mm. Um, oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and it's re- it was really interesting. It was kind of like this wonderful karmic sort of thing where, you know, it kind of comes back and it's a really lovely story because I was able to say to him, do you remember the diagnosis? Because I remember the, t- mm-hmm. the day I came home, it's really weird. The day I came home, and I think we'd had range and obviously I was just being told that I don't have vagina and that I'm, you know, I'll never be able to biologically carry a child. But of mm. course I'm planning one when I go to the pub because there wasn't, I didn't really get the gravity of it. I don't think mm. I got the gravity of it for maybe 10 years after my diagnosis. Um, but it, it was really interesting talent. I've just, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing his name. He's fine. Hopefully. Um, I'll bloop it out. If you need to. No, I, I, I'll ask, I'll ask. I'm, I'm sure he'll be fine. But um when we walked into the pub, it was really interesting because I was joking about how, you know, part of my diagnosis and treatment is, of course, the dilatory process, but it's mm. to have sex. And it's kind of like, oh, who doesn't love the idea of like sex being on the prescription? And it's and we laughed about it and we joked about it. And I think that's possibly because maybe I was underplaying it or just I wasn't quite aware of it. And I've had some doozy disclosures like I can tell you all the ways not to do it um Mm. but you know you do at the time what you think is is right for you um but it's disclosure diarrhea it just comes out sometimes I've texted I don't ever advise 
texting your boyfriend that you have MRKH because mm. what I did, someone sadly um, with another ex told him to spite me, but I didn't have a chance to tell him she, oh, she did fuck it him. me. Yeah. Um, oh, just some really crazy ways. But um, when I chose to go public is probably when I, you know, decided to launch an organization in Australia. Mm. And it's really interesting because there was a, you know, we talk about articles that can sometimes fall in hands of journalists who essentially they're, they're trying to like gain interest. And we know that, you know, a strap line or a headline is going to be probably out there, such as woman born without vagina. Da, 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 da. Mm. And I kind of fell into those headlines in the early days. And I used to feel like my oversharer's remorse and like emotional hangover was the just vulnerability hitting, hangover the yeah. vulnerability hangover yeah. and I remember like closing the blinds and not wanting to venture out I felt so much shame mm. in the story and and is that how people are going to see me but really in essence that that headline wasn't lying and I think yes we don't want you know necessarily our parents and our friends or our partners to sort of read us as that headline but in fact it was true and I think it's, you know, I think when you choose to go public with the story, you have, you're going to, you know, you're going to lose a little bit of control how it's shared and distributed. And I think you have to be super, super careful with what, you know, we talk about why are you sharing? What's your purpose for sharing? Are you in a place to share? Are you in a place for feedback? Because once you put it out in line, it's, it's no longer yours. So I had a... I had a quite a positive experience when I did my first Metro article where they actually said, mm. what words do you want to use for this article? Yeah. And what do you want to call it? And obviously they were keen for the vagina title, the born about mm. a vagina title, but I was 21. There was three other people doing it with me and we just put um, meet the women who were born without a womb. But I do think that if the vagina title was on there, my mental health would have been quite, I don't know what the word is, but it would have been such a much bigger impact on my kind of like vulnerability hangover, my anxiety with my story, because mm. I was proudly sharing it to my family and friends going, look, it's me. And I spoke about my vagina in the article, but I was so terrified that the, the title would have been changed by the whoever the Metro mm. the newspaper. But like you said, some of you, some of people that share their story lose control. Um, and I guess, yeah, and I guess you, I think there was a quote um you need to hold the pen when you're writing your story and a lot of people get that pen taken away mm. so what are your what are your tips and tricks to people sharing their story tips and tricks <laughs> see there's me trying to throw in a question <laughs> no 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 I think I think it's really interesting like it depends <laughs> it depends where you're coming from mm. if you're an advocate you know and someone who wants to improve the well-being for others then that's a pretty good reason to maybe raise mm. awareness. I think it's super important to consider even where the publication's gonna end up. You know, there are some publications that um, they really wanna spin a story and they're looking mm. for clickbait um, hooks. And those hooks can sadly morph into, you know, I, I don't wanna say tacky facts but mm. you know that the ones that are just there to purely have like a shock factor and they want the others. word vagina in it for that shock they want factor. the word and vagina a in without it. a vagina is, it the, <laughs> is the title they really really want <laughs> I know or, yeah yeah 
Um, I think when you're, you know, when you're prepared to share your story, I think it's, you need to know your why and you need to know that, or you need to distinguish, I think, between excitement and a fear. Because excitement mm. is good butterflies. You know, you're eager to show your story, tell your story. You're eager for it to be shared. But if it's coming from a place of regret and you just think, do I, you know, do I really want to be walking down the street and am I okay with someone knowing my innermost secrets? And if you're in a place where you're prepared to do that, that's great. That is the right time. But disclosure is really weird from partner to friend to family to publication. And I think, you know, if you're coming from a place of vulnerability, that's really great. But if you're not prepared for any of the outcomes or the reactions, mm. then it's possibly not the right time. And I think it's always good to put a chunk of time between the trauma and the sharing. Because I sometimes think that, again, in this social media context, we talk about coping doesn't equal sharing. Mm. And I think that we have a really big responsibility so as people in sort of like a bit of an influential position to say to people, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't need to post your diagnosis in order to cope. That, mm. that won't work. It really won't. And I think that's a really big encouraging thing that I say to younger people because I've seen people share on TV and newspapers and shows and five ten years later they nosedive into some kind of sad spiral mm. probably because of overexposure that they weren't in control of or they felt that they should should mm. be doing it because it is you know it's infectious you know you see people online you go oh my god they look so empowered really and they're is, so happy yeah. and they're so lively and they're coping mm. so well and they're like where's the stories to say this is a really bad fucking day or this is a really bad month or this is a really bad year we, you know and I think it's really important that we acknowledge why we're saying why we're sharing mm. our stories like there's also there's also so like we said around we need to take away the shame of the vagina element but then again we also want people to know that they can share it without with protecting what's private to them at the same time so it's really hard isn't it that level of like advocacy versus I also am a bit private about this but also want to raise awareness about the wombless not that we're less mm. but you know what I mean wombless mm. and I feel like there's because when I came out not came out we call it coming out don't <laughs> I know, we? MRPH, it's coming out I remember just feeling like I was not ready to talk about the vagina element publicly and then slowly but surely that became a thing that I was doing and then I and then suddenly just sort of became a bit more comfortable talking about that and I still I still get uncomfortable about the words without because I sort of feel like well I have got one I just made it myself mm -hmm. <laughs> and I spin on it so my handmade, handmade vagina yeah handmade vagina. vagina not the handmade How long did it take vagina you <laughs> to, your... to make my vagina yeah to make your vagina I I don't know how long it took because I think I was forever making it from the first time it was touched <laughs> So when I first okay, I get it. when I first tried to have sex or mm -hmm. when someone fingered me, I think that was obviously the start of the making of the vagina. But did you how, how long did it did take? You know, you? did you know like when you were in those sort of sexual positions or those sexual kind mm -hmm. of encounters? Did did you was there anything that triggered you to question? You know, people say, "Did you know? Did you know?" Yeah. So I 
definitely knew <clears throat> because I had a bit of a shit experience with an ex where we I tried to have we tried to have sex and he was getting pretty pissed off so not a very mm. nice person that we couldn't as in we could have sex but obviously back then I didn't know what the whole realm of sex meant so I was just thinking uh, he needs to get his penis inside me <laughs> somehow and it wasn't working and I also this is really like too much information but I also remember like looking down with my fingers and getting a um a tampon <laughs> and also a what they call the earbud things oh cotton buds <laughs> did literally you? got a cotton bud and went down there and sort of like put one inside my urethra and it was fucking painful because I had no idea what all these holes were didn't understand that my vagina wasn't really I could get maybe again n- never too much information between me and Ali um, but I'm gonna ask you the same questions <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> I'm going to get like, I could get probably, if you look at the end of your finger up to the first, what's that bit called? Knuckles. No, but they're your knuckles. <laughs> they're both knuckles. Oh, okay. They? Your they're bottom both. knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was would... supposed to be experts in some sort of anatomy. But, yeah. So I yeah. could probably shove my finger. I know this is a lot of information, but I could probably squeeze my finger up to that. Mm. But there was no way that there was going to be anyone having penetrative sex with me and I think I just remember feeling so confused and ashamed and upset that this like thing called sex was something that I couldn't do it was awful and and the fact that guys at that age just want to get their end away and don't really give a shit about your pleasure anyway so <laughs> that was my that was, well, it my was experience. Kind of, yeah well that's the whole porn culture thing right mm. like you know and I just saw the post from that fabulous girl um about how you know is it real I want to say real sex isn't porn but somehow I think yeah somehow we got this whole idea that you know penis and penis equals vagina but Mm. there's also that you know when you're talking about urethra that has that obviously is something that can happen to people with MRKH um with maybe lack of medical support or even awareness you know I know people that have you know had sex Mm. with you know with the urethra because they wow. just thought that that that's a hole therefore that must be the hole to have sex you know must wow. be the, must be the entrance so it's it is I mean you know I guess with you know in certain certain cultures certain mm. countries and obviously through different time periods you know that there will be people experimenting with sex yeah. without you know knowing, knowing yeah. any different um and I had no idea what my clitoris was, as in what it did. All <laughs> did right. you, when, when, when did you first discover your clitoris, Ali? <laughs> it's really funny talking about like disclosures and storytelling. And I was just about to say like how to protect your family when you're telling stories. But yeah, <laughs> my dad won't listen to this. I'm pretty sure he won't. What, what do you want to know about my past? <laughs> tell me no tell me tell me more about your teenage self about teenage Ali and how um I guess you've probably told your diagnosis story a million times but more around how you coped and maybe the difference between teenage Ali and maybe how Ali as a teenager would feel in this day and age and how that's changed over time because I think yeah I don't know how long ago your diagnosis was but it was probably very different it's mm. so long ago and it's really interesting you know we talk offline about MRKH and mm. the role of MRKH in our life and the way that we've evolved with our story and you know, it's funny because I can't really 
relate <clears throat> I kind of look at it from a like a like almost like it's a different person which is probably not a bad mm-hmm. thing to be in a situation where I'm not governed by my diagnosis I actually have become quite good friends with it in many ways I think it was really important to get kind of up close and personal with with your trauma um diagnosed at 16 I don't want to say it like so I have obviously done you know, <laughs> the story uh, diagnosed at 16 at Queen Charlotte and Chelsea Hospital in London where um I went in and had you know one month or so after mm. my diagnosis went in for treatment um for vaginal lengthening through dilation and I had three days in hospital like um I'd say, say a lot of people through the Queen Charlotte program have and then I had nine months at home um creating and finishing off this vagina nine months yeah because that's what you asked me about how long it takes yeah I think there's no because there's not really like an end beginning and end is there as in I feel like it, for me if it was like a ongoing process where I did mm. it for three did it for three months and then just stopped and was just trying to have sex and the more I tried to have sex the more it got bigger so yeah it's, it's fascinating how long people do it for depending on how they when they like almost like it's a project that you kind of have to have a start mm. and a finish and when's the finish I don't well, know I, anyway you know, sorry carry on I bought no, in your vagina no, really nine months <laughs> no yeah I just thought nine that months was, vagina. I, my nine month vagina is could be a film um <laughs> maybe anyway sorry, I think the thing fault. about the vaginal dilation thing for me mm. you know we talked about how it feels like you're losing your virginity to mm. a set of dilators you're, you're like you're, you're losing it to these these apparatus or, or whatever mm. it might be and it's it's a weird thing when your first associations with intimacy are in such a traumatic setting and only in the last literally the last couple of years have I really understood my relationship with that part of my journey and the on like the onward effect it had because I had really really shitty um viewpoints around sex Mm. I had like major hang-ups I would need to be drunk a lot in the first sort of 10 years of post-diagnosis because I just didn't want you know a man to think it's different and we know that you know I don't think men I I don't know it'd be interesting if to hear from them and think is there like Mm -hmm. a way of like knowing something's different from one person to the next or was it but I just had a really screwed up situation when it came to the that my lack of absolute worth or self-worth and I had I didn't have anything I had I just was just so so low and I spent 10 years on this mass destruction of self-harm binging boys you know if there was anything that I could do and even got myself into some pretty hairy and dangerous situations because Mm -hmm. I was almost just I don't know what I was pushing so hard against but I was just I felt so different and I want to give younger you a hug. I want to give younger me a hug. But you know what? She, I'm so pleased that she, air quotes, Ali went through mm. that. Because I always think that I was meant to have this diagnosis. I think it was part of my life design. And, mm. um, you know, my situation was hard enough that I could empathize and understand, but good enough that I had a chance at healing. Because had yeah. I not, the last incredible you know incredible 10 years wouldn't have happened for me and I wouldn't have this level of awareness and empathy and a passion to change 
perceptions and to write about mental health and sexual mm -hmm. mental health and fertility and body positivity and I just it was just such a messed up relationship with relationships because mm -hmm. I never felt that I was worthy of a good one so I would fall into bad ones of you know emotional abuse or physical abuse because I felt that you know they were doing me a favor by taking me on and yeah. it was a you know they I wasn't looking for someone who wanted to respect me because I didn't respect me mm -hmm. um and I think so for some people with MRKH their biggest fear is motherhood or lack of motherhood options and obviously for some it's around dilation and sex and relationships and things like that and for me that, acceptance mm. <clears throat> that's where it landed for me but only now it's really interesting I've I've known you know I've been a, a female for 40 years mm. but only now do I feel feminine she looks 25 <laughs> and you know what probably in a way because I don't have kids you know what I mean like I think there's ah, definitely... the child free life maybe oh. I don't know just on that but point would you describe yourself because there's a difference between child free and childless would you describe yourself which yeah which word do you feel more comfortable with because I just said the child free life but obviously that not, might not be how you feel in that I think when I've accepted that I'm not going to be a mother mm. I now say child free because mm. I've come to a place where I have to I have to move on from the inability to have a family so mm -hmm. prior to that, it would be childless because I was feeling saddened and um, it's just really overwhelming, really. I don't yeah. think that you ever kind of grow out of uh, certain facts around, you know, it doesn't hurt me as much to see a pregnant lady, but mm. you could put one born every minute on and literally I would, you know, burst into tears because there is an experience that I will never experience mm -hmm. which is what it feels like to grow a baby or what it feels like to birth a baby and I know it's not all like lollipops and rainbows and parenthood is hard and I understand that I really do yeah but I think there's a um now I'm kind of going into the child free headspace because I you know I have to make I have to make this this next part count and I mm -hmm. have to go in to it with a positive try to do it with a positive headspace yeah it's what about like you free, freedom with grief I think at the moment I it's weird because I don't feel childless because if I was ready to have a child I'd be going through that motion and I've been mm. with Chris for six years now and we talk about it all the time and it's like on the agenda if I could say that yeah um, but I don't feel child free because I feel like I'm not at the stage where I've stopped thinking about having children because I think I still am hopefully going to go through it and I hopefully have children mm -hmm. at the moment that's how we're feeling at the moment so yeah, it's, it's a hard one but then I don't so I don't feel like at the moment I fit into any childless or child free because I'm just I'm just me and I don't have kids yet or maybe not yet <laughs> I like so that I feel like, do you know what I mean I'm sort of it's the same there was a I'm sort of neutral to it at the moment because there was a who was it there was a, a girl called Beth and she did a blog around how self-love is such a like uh, pressured thing to love yourself love mm. your body and she's gone with just being neutral to her body she doesn't love it she doesn't hate it she's just neutral so I feel like I'm not mm. child free I'm not childless I'm just neutral in the moment at the time at, at this moment in time 
I like um, that. So yeah, because I think I keep asking people because when I speak about people that haven't got kids that I know may not have kids and it's maybe past that kind of um, not that it's ever passed but as in I know that you mm. said that you probably aren't gonna venture down that road we, I don't know if you will or not but we'll see, yeah anyway <laughs> I don't know I don't know I, I, yeah mm. who do you know what though who the fuck knows who the fuck knows exactly so I didn't mean to say that I meant no, from no, conversations no, no. I know that you're child free right now but that doesn't stop with that but it's interesting completely because there's no that... biological clock fuck the biological clock I know I know it was so interesting when I kind of was answering the clock a couple mm. of years ago and I had money and I had the surrogate and I was so fortunate to be offered a, a womb like that's just incredible mm. but I also realized I wasn't in the space where I wanted or could I mean I wanted a family and I just wasn't in a in a stable relationship and I just didn't want to you know I, I just couldn't I just couldn't you know and I, I got to like I just hit this wall of despair and it's so consuming and you have to really you know want to have a child to go through those processes and it's almost it's weird because they call it like conscious parenting mm. where you have to really consciously choose whether you want to be a parent and you probably ask yourself questions and people ask you questions that some don't have to answer and it's mm. a really funny process and yeah I think it's I think life now is you know I've become a little bit I don't want to say the word selfish mm. but I am 40 now and I think that I probably am just veering into that next stage but it's also a really it's a really terrifying stage because mm. a lot of people I was having a meltdown and um, which I have quite a lot of them <laughs> but um I was like we were talking about meltdowns earlier weren't we the, well <laughs> yes I, was, I had a I had a awesome one today but it's it's that funny thing isn't it like when you're a certain age people think that you have you know your receipt to success mm. could be through you know being married or having a child or you know and all that kind of stuff and I was just like I I went through like a, I'm failing as a human because I I haven't got these things a society the human yeah. of society <laughs> Yeah, and not just a human, but society's expectation of a human. Exactly. Mm. And there was a dude across the road and he meant well, but he said to me one day, um, I know I love the fact that you're drinking wine. I mean, I'm not <laughs> condoning wine drinking if you're a, anyway, but anyway, no. anyway, anyway. <laughs> um, and he said to me, he was like, Oh, Ali, you always you know, look such like a tortured soul. You know, you don't have kids and you're unmarried. And I was just <laughs> It was lucky I was in a good mood because that could have really fucked with my head. And mm. I just said to him, I was like, well, first and foremost, I'm unable to carry a child biologically. I'm fine with it. Ask me any questions. I'm good. And, you know, as I love for, that you said that, though. Just well, said I it think it's people. just really yeah. important to not I don't because this is the other thing, right? I've this is one of my I don't know if this is fair to say, but look, it's how I feel. We know that there are things that you don't say necessarily mm. to people um, if, you know, about having ch children or, you know, at least you're lucky you don't have period pains or, you yeah, know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. We do hear all those things, but sometimes these are really great conversation starters. So I, I don't ever shut people down for saying mm. the wrong thing because nine times out of 10, they're saying it to soothe us. And they're saying it because they want to kind of con console us. No one's doing it deliberately. And you look, you know, 
we're still trying to figure out the psychology of MRKH 20 years down mm. the road. So how can I expect someone in 20 minutes to pick it up? It's, it's an impossible expectation. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, gender in the community and how, you know, the, the sort of the education and the understanding. And we need to have those conversations as opposed to coming from a place of you should know. So if people don't know and ask the questions, how, how are they going to learn? Yeah. And I think that's just something that I'm really feeling at the moment because, yeah, because I just think mm-hmm. it's really important to acknowledge that there are so many different experiences. And also my big thing is giving people the permission to not be okay with it. Mm. And permission slips. You did that in the workshop as well. We did do permission yeah. slip. Yeah. I think it's I just I think it's really important. Yeah. To, to say, yes, you can have a really great day. Yes, you'll be empowered. Mm. Yes, you'll get through this. But sometimes it's like, no, like this could be a really shit year for you. Or yeah. this could be a really difficult junction in your life. And I want you to honor that difficulty mm. as much as you know what, share it. But like we don't even what we don't have to share. Mm. We don't have to share anything. It's not part of the diagnosis plan. Yeah. Like and we all I think there's almost like you <laughs> there's almost a pressure for everyone with MRKH to have, there's like a, what stage are you at? Have you gone public yet? Oh no. Oh, don't worry. You'll be there soon. It's like, no, and did that happen? you don't have to fucking go public if you don't want to. And actually that's, yeah. there's, there's a handful of people that are, there's loads of them. If you look at, I looked at the hashtag MRKH maybe two years ago and there was 1000 posts and I looked at hashtag MRKH. There's like what? 11,000. Look at it on Instagram. It's really like, that's yeah you you can see number that number of posts yeah but I just feel like there's such a pressure to suddenly like your acceptance journey and if you don't go public oh you're still shamed no you everyone not everyone talks about their periods on Instagram like my sister doesn't have MRKH has periods she doesn't accept her body for how it Mm. is by talking about periods and fertility things Mm. and all the things going on in her life it's just her life Mm. and (laughs) that's it yeah yeah and that's a really important point because I think, you know, we can become so immersed. Mm. I mean, I think there's that we start being our diagnosis. You know, yeah. I'm not yeah, yeah. MRKH. And I know that it's a really, really big part of the diagnosis story. And I also know that it will peak, you know, maybe your first serious relationship or maybe when, you know, the biological clock time, it will spike mm. and be present in your life more than not. But I think there's always, you know, as you say, there's always that thing of, you know, it's not, you don't, you're not missing a step mm. if you don't share it, you know, and I think before we know it, MRKH isn't supposed to be, hopefully, something that you coexist with in such mm. a large portion of your life, and I think it's really good to make sure your boundaries with your diagnosis and your boundaries with how much you let it into your life. Mm. I always say that you take control of it, it doesn't take, take control of you and that takes time and acceptance and on boundaries if people are saying can you come on my podcast talk about mrkh you don't have to say yes and i keep i think i said (laughs) yes to about five of them because i was like yeah i'll share my story everywhere yeah of course and i'm like nope i need to just rein it in do my own stuff and yeah anyway just quickly wanted to jump in on that no i think that's really important so many of us us are getting dms can you can you come and talk about mrkh and it's amazing because so many platforms want to raise awareness but actually it's okay to say no even if you want to be the advocate that goes for that particular thing Mm. or whoever it is asking it's okay to say actually i'm not i'm not going to do that at the moment i've got other stuff i need to do or mm. it's it's okay to say no but yeah anyway 
No, it's a, that was my two a, pence. <laughs> it's a no. That's that's your yeah. It's an incredible advice because I think sometimes we also equate. You know when you you know you know when someone's having a really good day or a really bad day because they'll like suddenly put up like a gazillion stories or even they go absent and you know they're having a bad time yeah. and I just think it's important to you know acknowledge that quantity of social media activity doesn't mm. mean again you're coping and it can be the opposite so for me sometimes if I'm posting more I'm feeling more depressed and if I'm not there I'm having a nicer time away from away from my phone so people kind of put it the other way around don't they They go oh they're online Mm. they're they're happy because they're posting stuff and actually for me sometimes when I'm offline is when I'm sleeping better having a more relaxed life (laughs) doing other stuff not don't get me wrong love being there and love doing everything but I do think I I get my manic posting stages when I'm feeling a bit on edge and a bit like manic (laughs) And it happens we all do it for a little validation and we're all doing yeah, it to exactly. kind of feel like we're connected to something outside mm. of our you know reality which might not be great that day mm. but I just yeah I think it's a really interesting story when we when we talk about sharing and um, you know why mm. why we're doing it and to protect you know I think it's really important to protect your past and to protect mm. your story and also you know we've chatted about why you should also back your story mm. and the boundaries that you have with telling it but it's also important that you feel super super comfortable that you're being your most authentic self yeah. good and bad because otherwise it's misleading and I think advocates or anyone who's got an influence on social media has a responsibility to represent the community mm. and represent the stories of the community and not yeah just not this you know everything's fucking fine mm. hundred you know it's, it's just not like that exactly. and I think um speaking of things not being fine you touched earlier on being a teenager self-harm drinking and we've had so many chats like me and obviously me and Ali are friends just for our listeners Ali I'm talking to the <laughs> listeners <laughs> okay hi <laughs> Hello. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to remind you there was listeners. <laughs> anyway, it's good. No, I was, so I was just going to juicy secrets. No, I'm I, <laughs> no, I was going to say. So yeah, it was serious face, serious face. Um. Anyway, back to teenage Ali. There's certain things that I think aren't spoken about enough, and you were talking about self harm and drinking and so many things that so many people go through that I don't think is reflected personally as much as things like, um feeling ashamed or feeling and there's stuff that comes with the mrkh diagnosis that so many girls mm. girls and people with mrkh must go through so how what do you think we need more of when it comes to sort of mental health awareness especially around self-harm and drinking and like i've mm. had so many situations where, like you said i haven't respected myself i've had sex with people i didn't really want to have sex with mm. i've just gone down mm. horrible dangerous roads of different people and it's been like a bit of a shitty whirlwind as a teenager but it's stuff that I haven't really spoken about online because it's very private. But what do you think that the community could do more of for those people going through those things that really are quite stigmatised more than maybe talking yeah. about mental health? Yeah. I think it's just about being uh, honest. honest. Mm. You know, and it sounds like there's a real simplification I mean, I, I, you know, we've come a long way when it comes to mental health mm. um, and talking about But that's about what I mean, it. have we? Because Well, do you know what? I don't, I think people love a good mental health story mm. after the fact. 
So I think people want to hear about, you know, the top five things I did to overcome self-harm or mm. the top five things I did to um, protect my story or these, you know, we really great at hearing about it after the fact, but we're really super uncomfortable when we hear about it in real time. And there comes the dichotomy because we don't want people to be sharing in their real time because we want people to be dealing with their feelings and their emotions and having some sort of safety around them. But for me, it was really well, human. Self-harm is a funny one because I actually feel more um, uncomfortable sometimes. Mm. Like, for instance, living in Bondi in Australia for 15 years, it's a you know the climate's beautiful and you want to go to the beach and you're going to wear like mm-hmm. clothes a bit more exposing and I just felt so much fucking shame around my self-harm which is very mm-hmm. evident if you looked at my arms mm-hmm. and I had to I deliberately I would never ask or say to someone to push through the frontiers but to to get a little bit comfortable with the parts of your life that you know are causing you embarrassment or they're stigmatized like I started going to yoga because I thought well this is a really safe environment for me to show my body and Mm. then I got used to that or I would go on a bus and deliberately wear a sleeveless top so I could just start to feel comfortable with bare arms and not not show them Mm. I just don't think we're necessarily talking about our hardest parts when we talk about our story or we do and we do it like a real kind of umbrella view But we don't talk about like the specifics, you know, for, you know, I went on a bender for three days. I didn't go home. I was drunk all day, all night because I just fell into the wrong company. Mm. And and that, you know, that's something that I've probably never said aloud. But I think it's important to know that people go through like these destructive patterns of excess of alcohol. And, Mm. you know, because we're just, we're devastated and we're grief stricken. And I think if we start to, use that narrative then hopefully people can go to their parents go to a friend go to someone that they trust Mm. and to start talking about these things because you know secrets don't go anywhere they just sit there dormant and they will just keep bubbling up until Mm. something just goes ping and I think it's trying to avoid that ping um what do you think do you think there's ways in which we can start normalizing (sighs) parts of the it's just something that I don't, there's there's a lot of MRKH um, awareness, which is around our scars are invisible. And I personally haven't been through a physical self-harm situation or journey or part of my mental health, but I've only, I've, I've gone through the drinking and the self-destructiveness and the not respecting my body. Mm. And, and I guess that is a form of self-harm probably mm. for so many years that I didn't even know that was. Yeah, it is. Do you know what I mean? You feel like you just don't know, you 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 envision self-harm as something which is physically harming your body, but there's so many ways that that can be done and it can be mental as well. Anyway, I just mm. think that there's not enough around, because there's so much, so much stuff that I don't say online, but I almost think, why am I not saying that? Why am I not talking about the fact that I was so self-destructive when I was younger? And that's actually a really big part of MRKH is how it fucks with your head when you're 16 and all those things that happen. So yeah, maybe in terms of like the support that's needed, there could be somewhere that is for people that are really not coping at 16 mm. 17 18 or any like any and in fact mm. I'm not going to put a number on it because any age can not be coping mm. um and just have something a bit more because I don't there's there's obviously all of our awareness pages but maybe mental health in that sort of like people really not coping with their MRKH needs to be kind of like a extra bit of support and maybe a support mm. group for those people um mm. but yeah it's, it's, there was what it was a thing that I read that said that 
MRKH is an invisible scar, but I'm thinking of my friends and people like you that I know have been through physical self-harm that actually it's not an invisible scar because they're visible mm. and it's completely different. It's a completely different story in that in that sense. Do you know, it's quite interesting because the diagnosis comes in our teens, mm. in our formative years. We haven't really had an awful lot of time as like these young adults to really, I mean, to really know what your blueprint of your personality is. Mm. And I kind of, that's a real kind of wanky way of putting it, but I don't know whether, <clears throat> I'm sure the MRKH played a, a huge part in that spiral and that downfall. But if I'm brutally honest, I now look back and think, I was probably always someone and have always been someone who's had episodic depression. Mm. Mm. And for me, it goes up and down and in waves and things like that. And so I, I think it's important to maybe look at, and you, as you quite rightly said, like undereating, overeating, excessive mm. alcohol, excessive sex, dangerous situations. That's all. They're all self harm tools. Mm. In the absence of having like the real awareness and understanding of what's going on, they talk about this post traumatic stress, which can happen following MRKH because it's literally mm. you know when you're sitting at the junction to womanhood and you think okay my role well not my role but these two great things that we're, we're taught it's our role <laughs> to have, you know to be a partner mm. to have sex to do these things and to be a parent and give birth and so when like this truck comes out of nowhere and like literally pummels you down at 16 years old it's like mm. I haven't I don't know like I you just can't you can't comprehend it and I don't think I think that's a really convoluted way of saying it. But I think if we start talking about mental health as a, as a symptom of maybe other things as well, life, it's going to be. It's not yeah, all so MRKH. True. Yeah, because MRKH not- is just that pocket of our lives that everyone else has loads of different stuff going on. And some of us might have clinical mental health or depression, like you said, mm. aside from that. And a lot of and I think a lot of people blame their not blame but you know what I mean sort of say right well I've got MRKH so it must be this that's the problem and then then your therapist focuses on MRKH and it's like actually take that out of the equation what else is going on and like Mm. and and sort of delve into you as a person more than like you said earlier we're not defined by MRKH so let's start having therapy for more than MRKH. I really (laughs) hope that we're not because I just think Mm. that I mean I now I'm 40 my role around and my feelings about MRKH have shifted hugely. Like even in the last 12 months since, you know, some of my advocacy's changed, you know, I'm not associated directly with a charity anymore. And it's, and it's been a real process of mm. turning 40 and now choosing to, to look at MRKH differently. When did you turn 40? Sorry. April. April. I don't feel 40. I didn't miss saying happy birthday, did I? No. No, because you put it on the chat. Oh, yeah, I did. You did. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> what would have you done if I said no, you did it? You'd be like a nine-month I would have, I would have blocked out the podcast. <laughs> no, 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 how funny. Um, no, but no, I'm just, because I can't, I don't, I don't live in my trauma anymore. Like mm. I'm, I've, I'm so sort of fortunately like removed from that. I'm really excited about discovering parts of my life and parts of Ali that have nothing to do with MRKH and mm. start seeing another another story and another side of my life and more ambition and you know it's the you know advocacy is is really really awesome but I don't want to be governed by the mm. last 20 years anymore um 
that's so yeah, important it's so it is especially now I've got mm. a child-free life like I have to replace that time with magic mm. and with really great opportunities because I've got an awful lot of fucking time well I, I don't anyway you don't need to hear about my like dramas but um <laughs> no it, it really is important I'm really excited to sort of see what happens next but can I just say I know you've said that you don't want to be like carry you want to carry on doing lots of mrkh stuff yeah. but also you're such a creative bloody amazing human who's given me personally so much confidence in things that i do ali's oh. like number one cheerleader get away go go I go and I, I don't like, know if this is weird but like so counting much. your followers <laughs> you know up. i'm like oh i've got to go and i was like oh shit she got to 12.8 i was literally <laughs> doing it i don't know why i was doing it, it i sit there it i sit project. there panicking about it like oh my god <laughs> I'm like I don't know how she does it as in she you um and <laughs> I'm like I don't know where she gets the in I don't I don't know how she does it but I'm just oh look I'm just super proud of you I think because we share very similar outlooks on life and I think I find that really refreshing it can be quite lonely when all I'm to is talking publicly about vaginas and everyone's it's just like crickets and so it's nice to um it's nice to have someone in my life that, you know, and you've supported me hugely over the last 12 months and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for that. Why it's are really we going to sit here and cry? What's wrong with us? I don't know. It's just one of the, do you know what? Yes, quickly. The third really Monday, <laughs> the third Monday in January is like the bluest day, one of the bluest days of the year. So maybe we're just being like January melancholy we're just kind being of... really nice and I just yeah well, <laughs> you're, just being you're, nice and well thinking of nice things to say you're amazing Ali's the, the reason I went public in the first place because I saw Ali's story mm. global MRKH the film was the reason I got into this bigger world of advocacy and Vava Womb was born probably with the influence of Ali being an advocate oh, so... <laughs> oh, oh anime I'm so, so happy today. I no, just... but this fight is okay to cry. I wanted to be crying. I'm joking. Um, but no, anyway, that is the truth. That is really the truth because every every advocate has someone that's gone before them that has told their story and every advocate's mm. kind of had that person that's they've gone, oh, that's amazing. They've done that and they've bonded with them and then they've done the same thing. And then yeah. and then you just feel like, I, yeah, I think it's like a domino effect of pride, but also of just storytelling. Um, but just quickly, because I know that we've only got a few minutes left. Yeah, I know. I Where is that hour gone? Don't want it to end. Um, could you tell us a little bit about? I'm going to get back to my serious LMA now. Can you tell us a little, <laughs> a little bit about Global MRKH and the current projects? I know we did. You you did, but also we did. Um, we yeah, we did. But you did. You fucking smashed we, it. The um, project in Afghanistan. I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about that. About Global. I know that you can't squeeze us in, so we're going to have to pick another episode, obviously. Obviously. Um, future Remember of that global. live we did where we were just talking for like three hours? And <laughs> Ali, my, I did all the questions I was supposed to ask. Literally, literally, I was holding my phone. Like, I had like, for some reason, I bought an iPhone charger, which was like a, a fucking ruler long. And I was trying to like do my Facebook live. I had no light. I think I had probably... Yeah, anyway, it was just one of those situations where I kind of look back and, you know, you never want to rewatch something. Yeah, I hate it. We were just talking I... and you were being so articulate. And then I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. I'm known for not being that. In oh, you are. <laughs> you are. I try. Um, I mean, I'm, I am trying. I've got a dictionary here. <laughs> Urban dictionary. 
And anyway, yeah, Global. Tell us about Global. Sorry. In, and also, we've obviously got an end of your message. So if you can tell us about Global and your message to the next girl, we've got some stuff to squeeze in. <laughs> okay, so Global MRKH was established in 2016 with Amy Lossie, Christina Ruth from The Beautiful You, Jackie Quinlan, myself and the Sisters for Love. And what we did... Talk about being articulate. <laughs> you're smashing the sound go, go, go. that was on the Malbec um so what what we wanted to do was to create like an international consortium to better understand again the global footprint of what MRKH looked like by partnering with peer support group leaders ambassadors MRKH representatives researchers psychologists and healthcare providers so the global MRKH isn't solely or really designed to be a support group. They have those existing wonderful, if a byproduct is, of course, that's great. But what we wanna do is really understand what's happening when it comes to patient care. How can we improve patient care? How can we mobilize as an international collective to help understand and to kind of like look at the really, really important issues when it comes to why in one country do they, are they pro-surgery? and why in another country are they pro-dilation? How can a support group be set up in this country because we've got evidence that it was set up really well in that country? It's really just like a big global Wikipedia for sort of MRKH. We did have a little bit of a dip due to COVID, um, but now we're kind of mobilizing our efforts. I think there's something like 22 countries that now we've got involved with global MRKH. The Afghan project, was in a way sorry I said my face is really excited just for the listeners I know and I'm I'm really I'm really thrilled too because this goes back to the original part of this chat was about helping mm. people in countries of minority and difficulty and I think it's our job to find the people that don't even know we exist yet and mm. that's advocacy in my eyes and the Afghan project we you know we're not obviously a politically purpose-built organization just to look at like campaigns such as the Afghan campaign but we really wanted to do something to highlight our international I guess sisterhood if mm. you want to call it that to raise money for and it bloody did it really yeah we did, did. It and it was, was a so really amazing. great demonstration wasn't it of how we kind of all worked together really great social media campaigns mm. really great captions really great sharing and we were empowering this like community and seeing the efforts so at the end of January we're going to have our first global MRKH meeting with everyone we're going to talk about who's doing what in what countries where there's gaps for improvement where there's best practices where there's sort of leadership roles and I think it's really really going to change MRKH in the global level it's fucking amazing I'm excited actually I'm so excited I'm, excited. I'm so excited to just come along and just can I just say you're one of the advocates that a lot of I know that you've done a lot of public stuff and you've launched a lot of charities and stuff but when it came to like the Afghanistan campaign Ali is so good at just organizing everyone across the world like literally around the world and just going right everyone I need you to do da -da 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 -da. and I think you're just you smashed it because I think it was one of the big I, I found it so empowering just being a like grid post on the square of like a million not a million so that was exactly 20 other grid posts of people <laughs> it around was the world empowering. it was really it was it so like really it just special. looked and it just well even I know it's Instagram and I know it's like 
a social media campaign but I think the impact of that was just so big and I just loved being part of it and I think it made us all realize that there really is advocates on every corner doing every little thing and that there's not there's never too much advocacy everyone needs a break and everyone needs a rest but there's never too much like advocacy when it comes to MRKH will always need us and you and particularly you oh I like you can you come around with me all the time you do wonders for my self-esteem but it's <laughs> no but it is but it is true it is true and I think mm. that we um we really proved our power and our hopefully our influence around you know around stigmatized groups of people mm. Mm. yeah it was very special so thank you it for was that. um I was really excited about the meeting at the end of January can mm. I just ask you what your message is to the next person being diagnosed with MRKH before we finish and then I'll tell the listeners that you're going to be back for many other things obviously okay what would I tell my what would I tell my younger self or the next person being diagnosed so you can choose I always say that you know you won't I don't know there's oh my god there's so much I almost (laughs) want to say I think boundaries are so important as a young person, as any person, you know, just to have incredible boundaries, but you are enough. It's not your job to seek acceptance. Um, It might not always be easy. It might not always be light. I think it's important to walk so gently, but you, you truly are like, you truly are enough. That's, you know, gosh. You're going to make me cry. Oh. Oh, that's lovely. Carry on, though, if you've got more. I don't think there, I really don't think, I just, I kind of, I want to say to people, if you're, you know, big, bold, brave statements, I think, but I just want, I want to soften the process and not set people up for disappointment if they're not, you know, skipping around the streets. You know, it will take what it takes, but. I just hope the grief is less for the next person than it was for someone diagnosed yesterday. Mm-hmm. I just think it's important just to keep accepting and softening the recovery process and talk honestly. Make truth trendy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's oh, Ali, that was so nice. And I think that's that is the biggest message we need is you are enough. And I think that goes like that means so many things. Um mm. I've absolutely loved having you here. So with have me I. Because we haven't spoken ages and well, we speak all the time, but we haven't spoke face to face virtually for ages. The only time and I can't talk, wait to go and get a drink somewhere in ready. I know, I know. <laughs> but it's funny, the only time we talk is if we're on a podcast or a workshop. <laughs> it's almost like if I let, let's set up like a massive campaign and we might have another conversation again yeah. <laughs> actually that is going to happen I'm coming to see you for a drink in Reading I promise do um, I'll show you the delights that is RG <laughs> oh yeah um so we've only yeah we've only met once what in real in no once in real life or twice in real life once in real life in, <gasps> when we were in Richmond it's mental mm. isn't it and you're really tall you're yeah uh, well you're not really small but I thought you were like my height because I am I know I have this Amazonian goddess like supermodel persona (laughs) but no I'm like five six however Kate Moss is five six so there's hope for me because I tall people wish they were small I wish I was smaller 
a lot of like my sister's much shorter than me thinks wishes she was taller but anyways but I think it's so weird meeting people on zoom because you don't know like what to expect when you hug them and when you like feel their body you're like oh I know I like <laughs> feeling your body like- and I'm like a giant <laughs> I love feeling your body too but I'm like a giant everyone meets me they're like whoa hey Alex. I know it's hey, very Alex. surprising that was that was one of my big like it was perfect meeting you I didn't go away and go fuck she's tall like <laughs> Anyway, speaking to you, you're the best, and I'll speak to okay. you soon. So, when this ends, can I do you want me to go? Like, go, go. <laughs> I can, let me just stop recording you. Oh, how much I loved last night's episode with Ali. All the links to find Ali and Global MRKH are in the description of this podcast. Also, just to say, I did consume about half a bottle of wine and I wondered whether I felt like I overshared on my vagina story. But after some thought, I left it all there for you. This unfiltered chat with a friend was an absolute joy. If you want to talk about any of the subjects we covered in the episode, you can, of course, Instagram Ali or not, Ali or I anytime. We are here for you. Stay tuned on the MLKH podcast as Ali will be back with some amazing scripted resources on disclosure and more. Huge love, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Mind Over MRKH podcast. We will have regular new episodes, so please follow and subscribe. If you want to come for a chat, get in touch. And to everyone with MRKH, you are not alone.